Well, good morning. Normally we would read the scriptures together right now, but we're going to be going over the entire book of Obadiah, so we're going to save that for a time. So let me pray for our children. We'll release them. If you don't have a Bible with you, though, this morning and you'd like to follow along, we have some ushers walking down the aisles. Flag them down. They'll give you a a copy of the scriptures. You can follow along with us. If you don't have one for yourself, take that home. That's a gift from us to you. All right, let's, let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your word. We, we recognize that uh, by your word, you have revealed yourself to us. We submit ourselves to that word. We ask that you speak to us today through your word. We pray that as our children go to their class and, and they open the word, God, you would reveal yourself to them. We pray that from a, a young age, our children would know and love and depend on Jesus. Would they put their hope, faith, and trust in you at an early age? Would they follow you all the days of their life? Be with their teachers. May the Spirit rule and reign in their classrooms. And may they know you this morning. That's our prayer for us here as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Children, if you're heading to class, now would be the time you can do be dismissed. Everyone else, please have a seat. As Ben said, my name is Josh. I'm one of the pastors here at Summit, and it's a, a privilege to have the opportunity to, to open the Word with you this morning. We're going to continue our time in our series through the Minor Prophets. We're looking at nine of those Minor Prophets this summer. There's a few of them that we're saving to preach through in, in fuller, more extended series. Um, but this morning, we have the, the privilege of jumping into Obadiah. Before we do that, though, I want to I turn your attention to these Minor Prophet Study Guides. We have these available out on the bookshelf. They're free of charge. And what we did was we put together a, a little introduction, a little visual diagram that walks through the structure of the book and a place for you to take notes for each one of our sermons this summer. So um, I, I suggest, encourage you to get one of these. It's a great discipleship tool just for yourself to, to be pouring over the scriptures and, and have a place to capture that. But also a discipleship tool to help you give your faith away. I was, I was communicating with a friend this, or this week. We were talking about discipleship, and, and he had a really great definition of what discipleship was in their ministry. He said, it's helping others hear from Jesus and obey him. And this could be a tool that would help you do that, that you could walk with someone else, help them hear Jesus through the minor prophets, and encourage them to obey him. So grab one of those. Obadiah, this is going to be a joy and a challenge to to walk through this book with you. Um, I think there's some advantage and disadvantage with Obadiah as we're coming in. Advantage would be, well, let me back up. I was doing some study of Obadiah this week in Bible Gateway, an app and website that does Bible study. They track uh, people's uh, engagement with the scriptures online. And they say that Obadiah is the least read book in all of the Bible. And they actually said that about 50% of evangelical Christians have never read Obadiah. So I, I think, number one, I think we're probably better than that. I think more of us have read Obadiah. At least I'm, I'm coming in hoping that today. Um, but, but that fact brings some advantage and disadvantage. Advantage is it's, it's not a familiar text. I'm not going to have to ask you to, to read it with fresh eyes and, and put aside anything that you come in with on that text. There's going to be a, a, a less familiarity with this text. Um, disadvantage, though, is, is there's, there's not a lot of repetitions. There's not a lot of familiarity with Obadiah. So we're going we're gonna to tackle that. But here's my challenge for us this morning. 
would we believe what the Bible says about itself? And that that's, that is that every word of God, every single part of the scriptures is inspired and God breathed. So what that means for us today is Obadiah is just as inspired and just as important for us as believers as the red letters in your gospels. Would we hear that this morning? Would we believe that? Would our hearts and minds be open to God speaking to us through this smaller, maybe less obscure book of the Bible. Amen? As many of you know, I have two little boys. Uh, I have two sons, Olson and Haddon. Olson is seven years old. Haddon's five years old. And as a father, there is something that, that makes me more angry, more uh, frustrated, more heartbroken um, than when my two sons fight. When, when they go at each other and, and they hurt one another, they antagonize one another, there's, there's something deep down in my soul that's vexed as I watch that happen, right? And I, I was reflecting on that this week, that, that there's something different about watching them hurt one another that, that's, that's different than when they're disobeying or when they're sinning in a, in a different way. See, when my two boys fight and dishonor one another, it, it feels personal and it, and it feels unnatural because I feel like I'm getting a front row seat on, on sin manifesting itself in this really unnatural, anti-God way that I don't think was supposed to ever happen. Here's what I mean by that. God created the world, and he said it was really good. And then he created Adam and Eve, and he said it was really, really good. It was very good. And, and I got to thinking, you know, before sin entered the world, Adam and Eve would have never fought. Adam and Eve would have only used words that would have built one another. Think about this. Adam would have only ever spoke words of blessing over his wife. And his wife would have only ever spoke words of honor and respect for her husband. And so what I see happening when my my two sons fight is this this manifestation of sin that, that I really do believe is counter to the way we were created. And what I mean by that is I think there's something about the way God created us in relationship that, that we ought to love one another in a marked way, that, that we're going we're gonna to care for one another. And, and so my invitation for us this morning is to hear from the prophet Obadiah as to, to why it's unnatural and why it's sinful for us to live lives of relational strife. But then I also want us to hear from Obadiah this, this hope and this restoration that he offers for relational strife. We don't know a lot about the prophet Obadiah. He's a, a fairly obscure prophet. He's not mentioned in the scriptures very often. What we do know is that this prophecy was written sometime between 586 B.C. when Babylon came and took Jerusalem captive um, and, and sometime between that and the fall of Edom, who's the other character in this book, which happened in about 550 B, 553 B.C. So sometime between that 33-year period, this book was written. Uh, another thing we know about Obadiah is it stands, stands a bit distinct from other minor prophecies <clears throat> in that we've looked at Joel and Amos and so far we've seen that both of those books were, were judgments and warnings against Israel for the failure of the covenant that God had made with them, right? They were, the, the prophets were declaring this judgment on Israel if they didn't repent and come back under the covenant of God. But what we see here with Obadiah is it's not a warning or a judgment on Israel. It's actually a judgment made on a neighboring nation of Israel. 
And there's something intriguing about that, right? There's this judgment happening to a people group outside of Israel that probably would have never heard this judgment. So Obadiah wrote this scroll, presented it to the nation of Israel, a judgment on those outside of Israel, and yet there's something for Israel to gain from it. We looked at that a little bit in James chapter 5 a few weeks ago too. There was this warning for the worldly rich outside the church. And Pastor Ben brought our attention to this idea that the worldly rich rich probably would have never heard this warning. So there must be something for God's people to gain from that warning. That's similar to what we see happening here in Obadiah. I want us to be encouraged and to see that I think there's something that, that... we might need to repent about, to turn from, to feel the conviction of, and, and to, to learn from this judgment on this neighboring nation of Israel. Obadiah has a, a vision of, of the coming judgment for a nation called Edom, and he communicates that judgment to Israel. And so we're going to learn three things for us here in Obadiah. There's three lessons that I I want us to to take from the prophecy of Obadiah. First lesson we can take is that as God's people, we have an obligation to care for those closest to us. As God's people, we have an obligation to care for those closest to us. Look with me at the first words of the book, starting in verse 1. The vision of Obadiah. Thus says the Lord God concerning Edom. As we mentioned a moment ago, this prophecy from Obadiah is a warning. It's a, it's a judgment from God over Edom, which is a neighboring nation, even a, a brother nation. It's actually a twin nation to Israel. But for us to fully understand this first lesson, that, that we're to care for those closest to us, we need to understand the history and the, the relationship between Israel and Edom. The story of these two nations actually goes back to Genesis chapter 25, right? Um, we see that there were two sons born to Isaac, who was the son of Abraham, if you remember from the scriptures. And Abraham was the one who God had made a special promise that he would bring about a special people through the line of Abraham. And so Abraham had Isaac, who had these two sons. They were twins. And as you may remember, one was named Jacob and the other was named Esau. Jacob was the younger twin who in God's sovereignty was the blessed brother. We can remember that. Like his father Abraham, Jacob was to be the one through whom God would work his saving purposes for the whole world. And from Jacob, whose name was eventually changed to Israel, came the nation of that same name. And then Esau, the other twin. He was the older twin brother. He was not chosen for God's blessing. We remember that Jacob and Esau lived this sibling rivalry between one another. Jacob deceived Esau for his birthright. And the nation that rose from Esau was called Edom. And it was located southeast of Israel, just on the other side of the Sea of Galilee. And like the patriarchs in which they came from, Edom and Israel lived out this sibling rivalry for hundreds and hundreds of years. They, they were at odds for a long, long time. And I think it's as we understand this relationship that there's these two nations that were birthed out of, out of twin brothers who, who were at odds together. We're going to see that we have an obligation to care for those closest to us. As we look at the first 14 verses of our text this morning, it's going to become clear that God, through Obadiah, 
wants us to understand that we have an obligation to care for those closest to us. Just as Jacob betrayed Esau, each of us can think of of relationships in which we've been hurt. Oftentimes, the relationships that are closest to us, those people that have the most natural closeness to us. Why would Edom and Israel, twin nations, have such strife and bitterness between them? Why is it that those closest to us are, are the ones that hurt us most at times? Why do my sons fight and antagonize one another? Why do we do the same things to those we love? Look with me at verse 3 for what I think the answer might be. The pride of your heart has deceived you. This is God speaking through Obadiah to Edom. The pride of your heart has deceived you. You who live in the clefts of the rock, in your lofty dwelling, who say in your heart, who will bring me down to the ground? Though you soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is among the stars, from there I will bring you down, declares the Lord. Obadiah says it's the pride of their hearts that deceived Edom. And so we see it's selfishness and it's, it's pride and it's arrogance that would drive a brother to hurt his brother. As Obadiah confronts the reality that we should care for those closest to us, I believe it's also an invitation for us to investigate and consider the pride in our hearts that causes us not to care for those closest to us. C.S. Lewis in his book, Mere Christianity, says, There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, which everyone in the world loathes when he sees it in someone else, and of which hardly any people except maybe Christians ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. There is no fault which makes a man more unpopular and no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves. The more we have it in ourselves, the more we despise it in others. The vice I'm talking of is pride or self-conceit. Unchastity, anger, greed, drunkenness, and all that are mere flea bites In comparison, it was through pride that the devil became the devil. Pride leads to every other vice. It's the complete anti-God state of mind. Pride is the root sin that, that bears its fruit countless ways, isn't it? We can think of, of so many of these fruit sins in, in our lives or in the lives of others that, that we would trace back to the root of, of pride. And I think it's, it's that idea that, that it's under the surface, that it's the root of so many other things that can make it so elusive and hard to, to see and, and recognize in ourselves. See, for the Edomites, it was their, their lofty position if, if you study the, the, the geography around Israel, in the southeast is, is where the mountainous country is. And Edom was in the rocks of these mountains. Their, their nation existed in, in the crags and clefts of these rocks. And it's this geographical high ground that added to their self-reliance. This high ground that brought with it security from neighboring attacks also brought with it a, a pride and arrogance that Ob- Obadiah says has deceived them. Scholars that have studied the location of where Edom was and have done archaeological digs in that area have actually found that this is one nation that has never, there has never been found any um, history or, or recognition of any deity worship. 
which is unheard of among all people groups across the world. It's actually causing scholars, this is a, a debate that's happening in academia now, to, to have them say that they believe Edom was such a prideful, arrogant people that there was no need for them to be dependent upon a deity. That's unheard of. Think about that. Their pride was, was so massive that they could not even conjure up a deity bigger than they were to worship and depend on. No other people group in the world can, be, can have that be said of them. Now, historically, that's unheard of, though, though I think we can begin to imagine what that might look like as we continue to take in the landscape of our culture around us. We're continuing to see, our, to see and find ourselves living in a, in a godless culture whose, whose only real worship is not a deity, but of one of self. And I think that's what you would see Mark Edom. Their hearts were deceived by their pride, but God says that he's going to bring them down. In fact, it says in verses 5 through 9 that God wouldn't just humble them, but he would utterly destroy them. Look at verses 5 through 9 with me. If thieves came to you, if plunderers came by night, how you have been destroyed, would they not steal only for themselves? If grape gatherers came to you, would they not leave gleanings? How Esau has been pillaged, his treasure sought out. All your allies have driven you to your border. Those at peace with you have deceived you. They have prevailed against you. Those who eat your bread have set a trap beneath you. You have no understanding. This is in reference to God turning Edom's allies on them. They were cheering for Babylon to take Jerusalem, and then 33 years later, Babylon turns and overthrows Edom. Picking up in verse 8, Will I not on that day, declares the Lord, destroy the wise men out of Edom and understanding out of Mount Esau? And your mighty men shall be dismayed, O, dismayed, o Teman, so that every man from Mount Esau will be cut off by slaughter. This language should, should conjure up our memory of, of James where he says in chapter 4, God opposes the proud but gives grace to the humble. What we see happening is God opposing the proud nation of Edom. But then in verse 10, Obadiah starts to make this, this slight shift in his warning and I think it's here that, that really hits our, our first lesson um, right on the head. If God, if God hates pride, which, which he says he does in Proverbs 6, what Obadiah makes clear in these next few verses is that he despises a pride that would lead to a brother hurting a brother even more. Look with me, verses 10 through 14. Because of the violence done to your brother Jacob, shame shall cover you, and you shall be cut off forever. On the day that you stood aloof, on the day that strangers carried off his wealth and foreigners entered his gates and cast lots for Jerusalem, you were like one of them. But do not gloat over the day of your brother in the day of his misfortune. Do not rejoice over the people of Judah in the day of their ruin. Do not boast in the day of distress. Do not enter the gate of my people in the day of their calamity. Do not gloat over his disaster in the day of his calamity. Do not loot his wealth in the day of his calamity. Do not stand at the crossroads to cut off his fugitives. Do not hand over his survivors in the day of his distress. Obadiah is painstakingly walking us through all the ways that Edom's sinful pride had manifested itself in bringing violence and destruction upon their brother nation. Instead of coming to his 
brother's aid when Babylon comes through their city gates and, and ransacks it. It says in verse 12, they stood aloof. They stood idly by from, from the cliff dwellings looking, overlooking Israel, doing nothing to come to their defense. You can even see their pride take deeper and deeper root as, as Obadiah continues. In verse 12 and 13, it says they gloated and rejoiced over the calamity of their brother, even looting their wealth as they were being carried away. Psalm 137 and Amos chapter 1 are, are places where the Scriptures talk about this situation. And it says that Edom was responsible for plundering Israelite cities after they were taken away. And they were even guilty of capturing, abusing, and killing some Israelite refugees after Babylon ransacked their brother nation. You can sense here from the prophet's words an outrage towards this type of brotherly behavior. And I think it's this outrage that I begin to feel stirring in me when, when my sons, out of the same pride that deceives their hearts, mistreat each other and make fun of one another and, and seek to, to cut each other with their words and actions. So I think it's one of the deepest distinctions of the, of the sin and wickedness of mankind's heart when we intentionally mistreat those who we should actually be caring for. This is why as a father I get so angry when I see my sons mistreat each other. The scriptures make it very clear that we have an obligation to care for, protect, love, and serve those that we're closest to. Paul tells Timothy in his first letter to him, chapter 5, if anyone does not provide for his relatives, and especially for members of his household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. For God's people, there's an obligation to care for those closest to us. And yet I think if, if I'm honest this morning, and I, I think if we're honest with ourselves, we might see that our actions align more with the Edomites than we'd like to think. I know for me that my wife, the one closest to me, is often the one that gets the brunt of my prideful anger and actions. Right there, There's a way that I'll... I'll wear this mask and I'll hold things close to my chest when I'm at work or with, when I'm with my church family because I, I, I want to put my best foot forward. But when I get home and I, I start to take my wife's unconditional love and her forgiveness and her grace that I know she'll show me for granted, I can, I can hurt her in some prideful ways. Some of you might have been guilty of that even this morning on the way to church as you're trying to get here on time and you're trying to wrangle the kids and, and your pride starts to well up because it's not going as you think it should and, and you lash out against your spouse or, or your children. I think we can see that extend beyond our nuclear family as well to our, to our Christian brothers and sisters too, can't we? How easy is it for us to, to take pot shots at at Christians that are outside our theological or ecclesiological tribes. In pride, we can unfairly critique or, or characterize them in an attempt to make us feel smarter or more enlightened. Happened to have a, a chance to see this play out at the end of this week on Twitter. There's a, a, a celebrity pastor who is well known throughout the country um, who, who had a fall a couple years back. And his name made the news again this week. And, and the way I saw brothers and sisters attack this man online was, was just disheartening. They were, they were making jokes. They were almost as if they were siding with Edom, gloating over this man's 
fall and highlighting all of his imperfections. Now, I'm not saying there's not a place for, for fair critique of those who hold differing theological views, but, but many of us have the tendency to, to demonize those outside our camp or, or even cheer when we see some type of misfortune come upon them. I think a, a diagnostic question that can, that can help us think through some of these topics might be to ask, what's our response when, when we hear about a scandal or downfall in a, in a church outside our stream of influence? Is it heartbroken grief? Do we, do we weep with them, though they're different than us? Or is it, and as I have to confess, I've been guilty of a, a prideful gloating in my heart that makes me think that this fall shows that my church or my theology or my sanctification is so much better than theirs. God does not delight when we mistreat those in our family or when we rejoice over the grief of anyone else, especially that of another brother or sister in Christ, and he hates pride that leads us to not care for those closest to us. So our first lesson from Obadiah is, is that we should care for those closest to us. We have an obligation to, to care for those closest to us. The second lesson I want us to see from our text is that God will right every wrong. God will right every wrong. Look with me at verses 15 and 16. For the day of the Lord is near upon all the nations. As you have done, it shall be done to you. Your deeds shall return on your own head. For as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations shall drink continually. They shall drink and swallow and shall be as though they had never been. God will right every wrong. Period. End of story. Every sin committed on the earth will receive fair, just repayment. God will never sweep any sin any action under the rug. Now, his timing might be different than what we would hope for. We might not ever see the justice that we desire, but we can rest assured he will deal with it fully and finally. One of the themes we've been seeing play out throughout our time in the Minor Prophets so far is this promised coming day of the Lord, right? And we've, we've tried to, to paint this picture uh, of, of a mountain range and standing from a distance, you don't see the depth or the distance between the different peaks in this range. Standing from, from a ways, it looks like one simple plane, right? But when we zoom out and we get above that, that range, we see that there's depth and distance between the peaks and the valleys of, of this mountain range. And, and so this is a theme that we continue to see throughout the, the minor prophets. And, and so we, we, we recognize, as both Ben and Ryan have reminded us, that, that this day of the Lord has multiple, multiple fulfillments in the mind and plan of God. See, what that means is this promised day of the Lord when God will right every wrong, might have multiple fulfillments. So what that means is for the Edomites, this promise was fulfilled in one sense in 553 B.C. when Babylon turned on them and ransacked and destroyed their nation. Right? What they had done and stood idly by to Israel happened to them in 553 B.C. And so we see a fulfillment of this day of the Lord. 
But there's also a fulfillment of this prophecy to come when the day of the Lord will come upon all nations. Obadiah zooms out and widens this this judgment from, from Edom to include all nations on the earth, promising that God will right the wrong of all sin, all pride, and all brotherly betrayals. And so what this means for for you and me is that if you have been wronged or hurt, God promises to make things right. That means we can find comfort in knowing that the fair, perfect judge of the world will deal justly, and therefore there is no need for you to wring your hands for revenge. No sin will go unpunished, so you and I can rest knowing that God will justly pay back all sin and pride. For those who have been hurt or abused and desire justice, this can bring real peace. God is a perfect judge. He'll deal with every sin, every pride, every situation with perfect justice. And those created in His image, those who were created to live under His rule and reign, I believe have these faint echoes of a desire for that perfect justice. I was thinking about that this week, and I actually think that it's that, it's that echo, it's that, that faint desire for a, a perfect judge that makes shows like America's Got Talent and American Idol so popular. Those shows that have a panel of judges that are critiquing and judging the contestants are, are attractive to us. There's something in that that, that we enjoy, Right? See, deep down in our soul, we recognize that having a fair, just judge, maybe even one a bit like Simon Cowell, who, who will not just sweep things under the rug, but call them for what they are and deal with them fully and fairly, is a good thing to us. But we also must recognize that the desire we sense for a perfect and fair judge is not fully good news for us either. We recognize that the promise of God righting every wrong can actually be a terrifying promise for us, can't it? Every one of us is not just a victim of brotherly betrayal. We are also guilty of it ourselves. Every one of us has not just been hurt by prideful people. We are prideful people who hurt others. And each of us has not just been victims of sinful behavior. We are perpetrators of sinful behavior. And this promise that God writes every wrong should be terrifying. But that's not where Obadiah ends. We're rejoicing this morning knowing that Obadiah doesn't end in verse 16. There's, there's five more verses of hope for prideful, betraying, hurtful, sinful people like you and me. And it leads us to our third and final lesson I want us to see from Obadiah, and it's that there is an escape from the day of the Lord. There is an escape from the day of the Lord. Look with me at verses 17 through 21. But in Mount Zion, that's Jerusalem, there shall be those who escape, and it shall be holy. And the house of Jacob shall possess their own possessions. The house of Jacob shall be a fire, and the house of Joseph a flame, and the house of Esau stubble. They shall burn them and consume them, and there shall be no survivor for the house of Esau, for the Lord has spoken. Those of the Negev shall possess Mount Esau, and those of the Shephelah shall possess the land of the Philistines. They shall possess the land of Ephraim, and the land of Samaria, and Benjamin shall possess Gilead. 
The exiles of this host of the people of Israel shall possess the land of the Canaanites as far as Zarephath. And the exiles of Jerusalem who are in Sephrod shall possess the cities of the Negev. Saviors shall go up to Mount Zion to rule Mount Esau, and the kingdom shall be the Lord's. So far in the first 16 verses, all we've seen is judgment on Edom and the nations. But now we, we see this glimmer of gospel hope. The day of the Lord is coming, yet there shall be some who find escape. And it says that they will be blessed with Israel in the receiving of their promises and their redemption. This language in verses 19 through 21 are, the, are a description of the land promises that Israel will have restored to them. And it says those who escape the day of the Lord will actually be grafted in to these promises. This is, this is beautiful hope. But verse 18 says that for any that stay in the house of Esau, that's any who, who remain in Edom, there will be no escape. It says in verse 18, they will not survive. And so who escapes? And how does this escape happen? Look at verse 17. It's those who will be found in Mount Zion. It's those who are, who are found in Jerusalem, the city of God's people. See, what that means is the only way there is escape for the Edomites is to turn from the pride of their hearts and leave Edom behind and run to Israel. The hope for Edom is found in the same hope of Israel. See, Israel will find escape on the day of judgment through trusting in the promised king that would bring that escape for them. Israel was not, was not guiltless in this. In fact, if we go back to, to what, what started this whole thing in Genesis 25, we see that Jacob deceived Esau, right? Israel deceives Edom first. And so their, their needing of this same escape on the, the day of judgment, and they will cling to the promised Savior that will be found in Jerusalem. And it's the same way that Edom can escape. What does that mean for us today? Thousands of years later, last week Pastor Ryan said that, that we need to be careful as we're going through the minor prophets of this, of this idea that we can at times read the things of Israel and see how that they've failed under the covenant blessing and they've brought on the covenant curses for themselves and disobedience and kind of shake our heads and say, man, how could they? Those, those foolish people, right? Scholars call it chronological snobbery. That when we're on this side of history, we can look back and think that we would overcome our sinful nature because of what we know now and think we'd act different than Israel. And so that's a temptation we're going to have to continue to fight as we go through the prophets. But there's another temptation that I think we have to be careful of this morning in this type of prophecy. And it's, uh, it's that, we can, that we can jump to being Israel too soon. We can, we can unite ourselves and associate ourselves with Israel too fast. And here's what I mean. For each of us, every single one of us, we were Edom before we were ever Israel. Right? Each of us was born into the wilderness of sin, seeking in pride to build our own kingdom, 
thinking that we could rule and reign our lives better than God could, for every one of us, our first allegiance was to the nations, deserving of the judgment that we read about this morning. So what that causes us to understand is, though there's been many nations and many kingdoms in the history of the world, there's really only been two, the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light. All people are either in Adam or in Christ. And what this is saying at the end of Obadiah is for those who want to find escape, they can no longer be in Edom. They must be in Jerusalem. And so that means for us, we need to flee from being in Adam and be found in Christ. We need to to humble ourselves, to to run from from the place of, of pride and recognize that we have a Savior who has come to rescue us from the day of the Lord and that in Him there is escape. Like Obadiah says, for all those who stay in Edom or for those of us who stay in Adam, total justice and condemnation is promised, but there is an escape. For those who will turn from their pride, who will leave Edom, who will leave Adam and cling to Israel, submit to King Jesus, there will be a full and final escape. And it's this truth, it's what we call the gospel that not only saves and and restores us to what God created us for, but it also helps us deal with the hurts that life brings. Here's the beauty of the gospel. It's not just otherworldly. The gospel's not just for the afterlife. The gospel is, is big enough and grand enough and magnificent enough that it affects right here and right now. So what that means is is when I reflect on the escape from my prideful sin that Jesus offers me by the power of the Holy Spirit, I have this desire to start caring for and loving and protecting those closest to me. When I recognize the, the escape from my prideful sin that Jesus offers, by the power of the Holy Spirit, I'm able to better deal with the sins of my sons or the hurts that others that are close to me bring about because I understand I'm not the one who must take justice into my own hands. God will right every wrong with perfect justice. The beauty of the gospel is that he's for me and not against me. The beauty of the gospel is that he's working all things together for my good and for his namesake. Here's the truth this morning. My sons are no better than Edom, and neither am I, and neither are you. But there is one who's better than Edom, who does not have the pride that deceives his heart, who does not look to to betray his brothers or to, to gloat over their downfall or mistreat his refugees. Our Savior Jesus is better than Edom, and he came on a rescue mission to bring you and I out of the prideful cliffs that we try and hide in and to rescue us from our betrayals and bring us to the promised land of his people. So may we not be afraid to leave Edom this morning. May we not hold on to the pride that thinks we can rule and reign our lives better than God can. Would we bow our knee to the king of Israel? Would we seek the care for those closest to us? And would we trust the Lord who writes all wrongs for his glory and for our peace?
Let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you for every part of your word. God, we thank you for this small, obscure book. We thank you for this prophet that was obedient and and wrote down your word. We thank you for your good, fair, and perfect justice. And God, we thank you most that through your son there's an escape. We recognize that we are guilty of that condemnation. We are guilty to have that judgment poured out on us, and yet you have offered an escape in your son. And so would you help us to recognize that pride? Would we turn from that? Would we, would we run towards Jesus? Would we leave the, the rocky cliffs of, of pride and, and run to Jerusalem, if you will? Spirit, would you, would you prick our conscience if, if that's us this morning? If there's pride that we need to turn from, would you, would you gnaw at us and not let that be undealt with? But God, would we recognize the grace and the hope and the mercy and the joy that in dealing with it, we get to come to Jesus and there's now no condemnation. There's freedom, there's hope. We thank you for that grace. We thank you for your word. Would you help us apply it to our hearts? In Jesus' name, amen.